Thank you for listening to this podcast from Bethel Family Worship Center. We're honored tonight to be able to go into the word of the Lord. And if you were with us on Wednesday night, excuse me, this past Sunday morning, I spoke to you a, a, a message. I began to talk to you about a spiritual paternity. And we begin to dive into the word of the Lord. And of course, it was a generational blessing Sunday. Not only the children that sang, we got to be partakers of the beautiful voices of our kidsville and our kids city. And didn't they do a fantastic job? I, I, you know, I just love how things come together. And we hadn't had our children come into the worship center for a season to come and just lift their voice. And man, when they did, they did. They did so good. And we were so excited uh, to hear them. And then also to be able to dedicate five children on that particular Sunday, generational blessing. All the way around, we were really focusing on the blessings of generational uh, uh, seed lines and going forward. And I illustrated which, what I thought um, was we, we were able to really illustrate a, a very important point about being connected to a spiritual paternity, a father, a mother in the faith. And, you know, you could go back to Paul's writing when he reminded Timothy of Lois and Eunice, his mother and grandmother, and, and talk about how, you know, there is paternity there and um, that you're tapped into someone. You could see the rev revelations of, of Moses and Joshua, Elijah and Elisha, Ruth and Naomi, uh, Paul and Timothy, Paul and Titus. I mean, you see a lot of transparencies there or, or uh, what, uh, uh, really authentic relationships that carry weight of what we consider to be kingdom dynamic because of what the scriptures teach us, and we'll get into that tonight. But I really sense that when we grasp this and understand it in its fullness, that it is not a gate or a locked door, it is a open door of freedom to us. And I've experienced this in my own life. And the Lord will help me tonight. I want to continue with the thought, spiritual posterity. And I know we talked about generational blessing on Sunday. But tonight I want to talk about spiritual posterity. And one of the things that I wanted to illustrate to you when we, when we stretched the yarn across the platform, starting with Pastor Hill... Um, I wanted you to visually see I, had a, I have a spiritual father in my life. And there's uh, dynamics to that relationship. I have uh, my spiritual fathers, plural, um, have the right to speak into my life. Not just when I want to hear it, but even when I don't want to hear it. So it's words of instruction, words of correction. Words of admonishment, words of edification, words of exhortation. And so there are seasons in your life that you need a father who could be, a, could be gravel to you, could be a rock to you, could be sand to you, and could be water to you. I know you jotted all those down just now. Because there are going to be seasons in your life 
you're going to need somebody to gravelly get up in your face and tell you how the cow eats the cabbage and you're out of order and you better straighten it up. So you give access and there's reciprocity that goes both ways. But you grant access to a spiritual father to do that because you know that they care for your soul and on the other side of that is a blessing if you survive. If you survive it, you will come through it with blessing. Then you need a rock father uh, or mother who is not gravelly, but they, they, they will walk with you in the hard place. They will walk with you in the hard place of your life. Then you need a, a father or mother who is sand in your life. They allow filtration. They allow you to filter your emotions. Come on. To ask questions. Why is this happening to me? For you to vent and be able to say, I don't understand. But them to allow you to be 100% you and to filter your emotions. And then you need a water father or mother who refreshes you. Come on, somebody. Pours water on you and just says, take some more. Right? And, and, And so... You cannot be picky. Sons, fathers don't choose sons. Sons choose fathers. Now, I want to say this to you. When the, in the parable that Jesus taught about the faithful father, you know the story as the prodigal son. But could we also label that the, fa- the faithful father? He remained on the porch. He never left the house. (laughs) The son left, but the father stayed on the porch. And the first thing he did was not chastise the son when he came back to his senses. The first thing he did is he hugged him. And then he put a ring on his finger and he killed the fatted calf and they had a party like it was 1999. (laughs) My son who was lost has now been found. He's come home. And so the father never left the porch. He stayed on the porch. That's a hard place to be, especially when you want to run after people. But it's not healthy for you and it's not healthy for other people if you spend all your energy running after people who don't want to be helped. Reserve your energy for people who want the help. Are you with me? That'll clear up, make things a lot easier for you. But Pastor Hill represents a spiritual father in my life, one of my fathers. And I think um, I always tell the story, and and I'm not trying to make him sound harsh because in his later years, um, he, you know, you all just just fall in love with him and, and all that, and that's wonderful. And that's what fathers, he's reached a place of great respect in his life, a place that we call legacy. Um. But for me, when he was raising me in ministry, my father, my earthly father, Ray Hilton, who was also a spiritual father in my life, natural and spiritual, um, Pastor Hill was so, so, um, he, he, he told me how the cow eats the cabbage. And, and I thought that he was harder on me than he was anyone else. And I would get my feelings hurt. It took me a long time to realize that he saw such potential in me 
even when I didn't see it in myself. And the reason that I, I believed he was being hard, but he wasn't being hard, he was being a father. He helped me grow when I didn't want to grow. And I don't have time to go into some of the stories, but I'm here today because I listened. I listened. And I survived. And I'm thankful for the Father. Years would pass, and eventually, Pastor Hill would move back to Indianapolis, or moved to Indianapolis, after he thought he was going to retire from full-time ministry. Never, you never retire from the ministry, but he was retiring from full-time pastoring. Came back to Indianapolis, and I persuaded him um, with, with great love to come and serve in the house and let a son now honor a father. There you see full circle a father who gave a son an opportunity when I was green, smart-mouthed, didn't have much patience, critical spirit, took me under his wing, shaped me and molded me, told me how to line up, Helped me make major decisions in my life. And years would pass that I would be able to offer him a place on this team as a father. This is what it should look like in the ministry. Fathers and sons, mothers and daughters. Where a father gave a son an opportunity, the son then gives the father a place. Now that's as spiritual as you can get it right there. But that's tied into what we call spiritual posterity. You needed to see that. You needed to see other sons and daughters in the house. You needed to see what multiplication looks like. And that if the string is cut, all is lost. You lose all of the heritage. You lose all of the inheritance. One string being cut takes out generations. So it's so important that we stay connected. I want to read out of 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 15 and 16. The Apostle Paul, he wrote a letter to the church in Corinth, and he was talking with them with familiar terms. Because every parent who had a son when they reached 12 or 13, that Jewish son would go through a bar mitzvah where the son would then be declared as a man. And it is the hope of the parent that they would recite the Torah and have an opportunity then to enter into the priesthood. If they did not make the cut, they would go to daddy's business whether it be the fisherman business, the tent-making business, whatever. And that's why it was so amazing when Jesus walked by boats and said to some young fishermen, come and follow me. And they knew the voice of the rabbi, the teacher. They knew the voice of Jesus. And they left all and followed him. Could it be that they thought, 
well, maybe this is our second chance. But in that day when you prepared your child for their bar mitzvah and for their recitation and reciting of the Torah, families would hire instructors to teach their children and tutor them for that great event. So Paul uses this language to show us an illustration. For though you have 10,000 instructors, people that you can pay in Christ, yet you have not many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. Wherefore, I beseech you, be ye followers of me. Notice that Paul says, I've begotten you. I birthed you out. I can almost hear a mom say to her, her smart mouth teenager, I brought you in this world. I'll take you out. Paul said, I've begotten you through the gospel. Let it be clear, I birthed you. I had to put up with you. It amazes me sometimes after you've contended with people and members in the church and tried to help them for years and years and years and they'll leave through an email or walk away and go join something else and the people they join don't know what you had to deal with. Paul said, I've begotten you through the gospel. Wherefore, I beseech you, be a follower of me. We live in a time where many people are suffering from what I call an orphan spirit, even in the church. On Sunday, I shared with you that we are a thousand times more than what we are. An investment has been made in each of us, and spiritual paternity is available to each of us if we want it. And I want to share some things tonight that I have found to not only be tested and true in my own life, but it is also for a pattern for kingdom growth for the church. And it's found in what we call kingdom relationships. Not religion, as some who are on the outside looking in who have not relationship would like to call it. It is relationship. And before I begin, I want to share a little bit about myself so you can understand my journey. I was raised as a PK, a preacher's kid. My dad was called into the ministry, served in a local church, and then there was a season where he was sent out and blessed by a pastor, and he pioneered a work from scratch with the blessing of that pastor. And I remember dad telling stories about how you know, the Lord began to deal with him. One of the things I remember him talking about is how he had to leave the coal mines in the 60s and he moved to Northeast Ohio, to Akron, Ohio, which is, was at that time known as the rubber capital of the world. And he had various different jobs until he finally would end up landing a job in a steel mill or a place called Babcock and Wilcox. But being around in ministry... And sitting under a pastor, he was exposed to ministry, which then exposed me to ministry, my sister and I, and we served in ministry. And I learned early that my father and I were very different in our approach to ministry. My father is very phlegmatic. 
um, uh, very peaceful, uh, very uh, let's just all get along and just let God do what he wants to do. I'm very melancholic. Let's uh, have a bulletin to put in the people's hands. Let's have a service schedule. Let's start on time. And so I learned that both of our perspectives were good. They were just different approaches. I remember serving in youth work and church work and anything that needed done. And when you're in a small church, you do just about everything. And you know you're in a small church when you are the Sunday school superintendent and you're 16 years old. I received the call of the Lord at age 15. I was at a youth camp in West Milton, Ohio, and I prayed on that cement floor until the Lord, uh, he had dealt with me about ministry, and I said yes to him and surrendered all of my all to him. A year later, I received the baptism of the Holy Ghost when I was 16 years old with the evidence of speaking in other tongues. And I remember having this overwhelming experience with God that I burnt my plowshare and I killed my oxen and I got rid of my plan B. I didn't have anything to go back to. I wasn't, you know, if this Jesus thing don't work out, I'm going to go and do something else. I told God, I'm going to run after you. And then years would go, years of training, years of sitting up under, years of, of, of having dreams and, and visions and desires in my heart. And I would get frustrated sometimes why they weren't coming to pass. I didn't understand the process of time. I didn't understand how time works. I told God what I wanted to do. I told him I was going to pioneer a church in West Lafayette on Purdue University area. And God said, you're not doing that. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then I said, well, I'm going to go work, uh, serve in ministry for a pastor and a church that's very large and see if I can just get up under and hold their hands up. Surely God would honor that. God said, you're not doing that. He sent us to Indianapolis to Bethel Family Worship Center in 1999 a church that had, uh, was, um, had just come through its sixth pastor and we were just as green and fresh and just wanted to just serve God and bring a vision and just thought everybody would love us. It was a good church, we, uh, but it in, we inherited internal fractions and dysfunctions just like most families have dysfunction, churches believe it or not, can have some. We started with 22 people. Beverly and I were the youngest people in the church. So we were the youth group and we were the pastors. And we were trying to lead people who said they wanted to go, but uh, when we started growing, they fought against us tooth and toenail. In 2004, I heard the Lord speak to me about beginning mentoring men in, of the church and I came back from a conference the Lord had allowed me and my father to be part of. And I jotted down the names of, of the men in our church. And the church had grown exponentially. And I, I was able to jot down and narrow the list down to 24 uh, men at that time. I took 12 men on Tuesdays and 12 men on Thursday mornings at 5.30 in the morning and began to teach them. And we went through a process called uh, Acts 2020. And that whole year, I began to mentor them. And then as we got to the end of that year, we went another year. And I, uh, we birthed a program called the 222 Principles, 2 Timothy 2 and 2. And I asked them for you to continue to go with me. You must also have your own 2020. You must be discipling and mentoring someone. 
And God began to add to the church. From there, we got leaders, we got elders, deacons, we've got people who came into the church and started serving. And, and in 2005, I was asked to serve on a task force that our general bishop at the time, Charles Mosier, had established, and he wanted a question to be answered answered. And the question was, why is our denomination hemorrhaging from young preachers and pastors and leaders? And I began to try to answer the question. In 2006, I was then given the opportunity to speak to the general board of our denomination. I was the youngest person in the room. And I shared what God had begun to do in my life and was doing and what I was learning in... um, in trial and error, in fatherhood of sons and daughters in faith. It was in 2006 while I was at that meeting that God spoke to me. I messed up my flight schedule. I was supposed to fly out that evening after meetings were over. For some reason, I had booked to fly out the next day, which was odd because I wanted to get home. And I was stuck in a hotel room that night. I was preparing to fly home the next day sitting on the bed watching TV, and the Lord spoke to me. And God said this to me. He said, I'm going to fulfill fivefold fatherhood in your life. When God said that, I said, what? He said, I'm going to fulfill fivefold fatherhood in your life. I sat up in the bed, and I said, well, surely this is something I've read somewhere. I mean, I must have read that. I've never heard that before. And the Holy Spirit said it a third time. I'm going to fulfill fivefold fatherhood in your life. And then he showed me a hand, and it was like slow motion on an old reel-to-reel film. In my spirit, he said, I gave you a teaching father, and he named him. He said, I gave you a pastoral father, and he named him. He said, I gave you an evangelistic father, and he named him. He said, I gave you an apostolic father. And he named him. And he said, the next father I send to you will be prophetic. Then he showed me the face of the person. I flew home. I was rocked. I mean, I was totally shook up by this vision. I didn't know if it was a vision, a dream. I didn't know. I just know the Holy Ghost had had showed up in the room. And he spoke to me. And I went home. On that Friday and Saturday morning, I was teaching a mentorship class. I'd gone from Tuesdays and Thursdays. I had now added Saturdays to mentor. And after that Saturday morning class, two of the people that were in that class who I considered to be spiritual sons held me after the class and shared with me what the Lord had spoken to them. They said that while they were in prayer, the Holy Ghost said that God was sending me a prophetic father. I heard the word of the Lord. I knew it was God confirming his word. Six months, almost six months later, I received a phone call from this prophetic father in my life who at that time we only had just an acquaintance relationship. It was Bishop Wayman Ming Jr., our general bishop. He said, I'm calling you. He said, because the Lord has been speaking to me and I don't want to mess up our relationship, but I heard the Lord say something and I want to know if this makes sense to you. He said... God told me I'm supposed to be a prophetic father in your life. Does that even make sense? We can imagine the tears were flowing, the goosebumps. If I would have had an usher, I would have fell out. Come on. I mean, it it was just that moment with God. Which brings me back to our text 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, for though you have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you have not many fathers. Is the word father singular or plural? Plural. So there is, in my opinion, based on this and other things, that you can have more than one father in your lifetime. Because I believe that it can be dispensational in your life. Paul said, I've begotten you. And it seems more and more that I am requested to speak on this subject around the nation, around the world. And I've discovered that we are rediscovering this lost relationship in the body of Christ. More and more, we are awakened in our spirit with a desire to recover what we've lost. Everywhere I go, it seems like this is a topic. I'm hearing it more and more and more. I see it everywhere I go. Fathers who have no sons in the faith or daughters in the faith. And when I say son, it's not gender specific because in Christ, we are sons, all of us are sons. Does that make sense? It's not gender specific. So when I say that, don't think it's just for the men. I'm not speaking just of the men. I see fathers who have no sons to pass on their ministry mantle to. Sons who long to have a spiritual father and a covering. So I see both things happening. I meet ministers who are nearing the the season of their life where they should be able to sit back and serve in a place of respect But because they've not raised up a spiritual son in their house, they're scrambling to find someone to take that place. And often, because there is no relationship, they end up getting the wrong person. And some have made comments to me. Well, bless God, I'm going to go to that big convention and that big conference and find me a youth pastor. And one of the things that I like to say to a pastor at that moment, if they'll receive it, is don't you realize you probably, everything you need is probably already in your house? John Maxwell teaches in his book, The Developing the Leader Within You, which is a transformational book. It was for me in my life. Developing the Leader Within You. Jot that down, John Maxwell. It's an old book, but it is powerful. And he talks about five excuse me, levels of leadership. I'm going to give those to you. The first level of leadership you will come to is what we call position. This is dealing with rights, where people follow you because they have to. Because of your position, you're the boss, you're the head honcho, you're the big cheese. Excuse me, people have to follow you. Your influence will not extend beyond the line of your job description. The longer you stay there, the higher the turnover and even the lower the morale. People are only following you because they have to. You're the one that hires and fires. The second place of leadership that you should move to is the place of permission. This is based on relationships. In the place of position, people follow you because they have to. But in the place of permission, people follow you because they want to. They give you permission to lead them. People will follow you beyond your stated authority. That will make things different. Now, the key is 
you can raise up highly motivated people who get restless because they want to do something because you're leading them to that, which brings you to a third place of leadership, production. And this is why some people follow a leader of production because they see the results they're getting. People follow you because what you've done for them or what you've done for the organization. And this is where success is really sensed by most people in their life. They reach this third level where they're seeing results and production. Things are happening. They like you and they like what you're doing. You've got it good. And, And you really don't have to fix problems very much because you have so much momentum that things just start happening. But you can't stay there either. Then you move to the level of people development, which is reproduction. This is where I am in my life right now. People follow you because not only uh, they want to, but because what you've done for them, what you are reproducing in them. This is where long-range growth occurs. This is where your commitment to developing leaders will ensure an ongoing uh, reciprocity and continued expansion. And it's my opinion that we should do everything we can to stay at this level as long as we can, being a person of people development, developing other people to do the work of ministry. Do you know in Ephesians 4 and 11, the role of the gift, the Jesus gifts, the apostle, the prophet, the evangelist, the pastor, and the teacher, all five of those gifts that are given, the Bible said the purpose is so that you equip the saints to do the work of ministry. So it isn't the pastor that does it all. My job is to equip you to do it. Does that make sense? And that only happens if there is reproduction taking place where I'm reproducing leaders. That's why I don't want to go to a hospital alone and pray for people. Pastor Hill didn't go alone to the hospital. He took me to the hospital and had me pray with him and introduced me as his youth pastor to Sister Hoopendiddle, I'm making up her name, and says to her, this is uh, Brother Russell, our youth pastor. He's going to pray with me today. And I won't be back tomorrow. He'll be back to check on you. And he'll give me a report. Because of that, he's reproducing me. Now, I don't walk in there and try to take over and say, Pastor didn't have time for you, but I'm here. That's a disloyal spirit. You already know. I walk in and say, I'm here on behalf of my pastor. And when I leave here, I'll be bringing him a report. Let's pray. Too much junk and funny stuff in the kingdom. And then there is this place that I call where Pastor Hill is. This is the place of personhood, the place of respect. People follow you because of who you are and what you represent. This is a step reserved for leaders who have spent years growing people is a place of legacy. Few make it. Few make it. Those who do are bigger than life. The goal of every father is to reach this last stage. Unfortunately, many never get there because of different factors, immorality, corruption, and the list goes on. The enemy's job is to keep fathers and sons separated because that is where the curse is in the world. 
Now let's look in the Old Testament, the last book of the Old Testament, the last chapter of the Old Testament, towards the last verse of the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 through 6, is the last prophecy in the Old Testament that's given, and there's nothing else given for 400 years. And it says this, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet. He was talking about John the Baptist, who the New Testament said came in the spirit of Elijah. I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Our jails are filled with men and women who have no relationship with a father. Not only is this true in the jails and prisons, it's true in churches across America. Paul said you can have 10,000 instructors, but not many fathers. And I don't know how God intended for me to be in this path. Obviously, <clears throat> this is something he designed for me, but I feel like that I am a magnet for people who don't know who their father is or have no good relationship. And if they are able to overcome themselves, if they are able to overcome the itch, if they're able to overcome their... Because when you don't know your father and you've never been affirmed, you seek to make things happen for yourself. You seek your identity from what you're able to do rather than just sitting comfortably in the name of your father. And so if you're able to overcome yourself and submit, then you move into a whole other realm. But so many never get to that place. There are two words that are connected with the function of fatherhood, and that is this, relationship and character. These are revealed in the definitions of the word son. And I'm going to give you the definition of son in the Greek and also in the Hebrew. The Greek word for the son is, is huis, meaning the relationship of the offspring to the parent. The Hebrew word is bain. It looks like ben, but it's pronounced bain. It means builder of the family name. This is the Greek in the New Testament and the Hebrew in the Old Testament. And it indicates that you're building upon the character and the work of a father. A son builds upon what's been established and strengthens it. Without sons, in a church, there is no future ministry. Success is only success when you can point out a successor. There are five levels of relationship in ministry because we're not talking religion, something that's a cult where you have a secret handshake or anything like that. Relationship, kingdom, we call this apostolic reformation. I don't have time to go to that. But there are five levels of relationship in ministry. And here they are, the one, the three, the 12, the 70, and the multitude. I'm gonna give you a crash course on this. The smaller the number, the more lasting the impact. All of us look at number five and we're like, yeah, 
I want to have multitude ministry. Hey, I saw myself standing before a sea of people. I mean, there was a multitude, a number that could not be numbered. <laughs> and I was laying hands on everybody and oil was flying and I was preaching. Well, that's wonderful, honey. How are you going to do that when you don't even keep your oil changed on your car? Your car looks like McDonald's had an explosion. Dirty, dirty French fries. You'd be embarrassed if you had to take someone home from church tonight. Come on, smile at me. Not everybody, but you know what I'm saying. You need a father. <laughs> yes, Lord, speak. But multitude is not where it's at. The smaller the number is where you have your greatest impact. Again, we're talking about relationship. The one, the three, the 12, the 70, and the multitude. And here's the example. Moses had those relationships. Look at that. He had his one, which was Joshua. That was his son in the faith. He had the three, Joshua, Aaron, and Hur. You see them mentioned. The 12 tribes. He had the 70 elders. He had the multitude that came out of Egypt. Jacob took them down in there. Moses brought them out. A multitude came out. Now, this is where you begin to define relationships in ministry. Should I focus all my energy on the multitude? No, because the smaller the number the greater the influence. You focus on your one. Then you move to your three. And then if you're able to manage that, then you move to your 12. Are you with me? I'm trying to help you understand this. The smaller the number, the more lasting the impact. So do you see it in the life of Moses that he had five levels of relationship I'm showing you this because I want you to define this and I hope you're writing this down because you need five levels of relationship in the kingdom too. Not only in the nat spiritual, but I have it also in the natural. And it helps me stay focused on who I'm supposed to be pouring into. Moses had it and Jesus had it. Look at Jesus's, John the Beloved. Then the three, Peter, James, and John. How many times do you see Peter, James, and John together? They were the only three that made it to the mountain where Jesus transfigured. They're the only three that made it into the, the bedroom to heal the, the, the Jairus' daughter. The others had to sit outside and wait. If you were been one of them others, you might have been saying, I don't know why they always get invited to go. I didn't, I've been here. I filled out my dream team uh, form. I ain't never. Come on. He had his 12 disciples. He had the 70 that he sent out two by two. And he had the multitude that followed him everywhere because he was always serving happy meals and things, you know. People were following him for the miracles. But you see the levels of relationship that Jesus had. Now notice the progression. When Jesus started toward the cross, the multitude left him first, then the 70, then the 12, then the three, and the only one that left at the cross was John. The smaller the number, the greater the impact. Don't put all your efforts in multitude ministry. It may look impressive, but it won't last 
and have lasting impact. Start with your one. And this is what was not taught to us early on in the years, the early church. Everybody's trying to make a name for themselves and crusades and, and big tents and there's nothing wrong with any of that. But when they died, they had no one to turn it over to. If the church falls apart and dies when the pastor does because there's no son in place or sons in place, then it was never about him. Who was it about? That personality. We are always to be training people, raising people up. It's important to note that as we raise up spiritual sons, there is a twofold effect. It's not in your notes, but it, here's what it does. It carries on our ministry and it advances his kingdom. So I stand here tonight in double portion anointing of my spiritual fathers because I served them and I, I didn't leave until they blessed me and I didn't cause them a mess and if I did, I repented of it. Are you with me? Our identity is lost when we serve. Now, let's go to 2 Kings chapter 2 before we wrap this up. It came to pass, I'm going to read it for you, and, and this isn't that part, portion. You just Let's go back to verse 1. I'm going to bring that scripture up later, Krista. But I'm going to read just 2 Kings chapter 2 concerning Elijah and Elijah. Will you stay with me? On this, I hope you have your Bible open. It came to pass when the Lord would take up Elijah into heaven by a whirlwind. That Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. Everybody said Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, Terry, here I pray, for the Lord hath sent me to Bethel. And Elisha said unto him, As the Lord lives, as thy soul live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. Everybody say Bethel. And the sons of the prophets. Do you know who the sons of the prophets were? They were the sons of of Elijah. They were in his school of prophets. He had a school and these people were part of his school of ministry. The sons of the prophets that were at Bethel came forth to Elisha and said to him, do you know that the Lord is going to take your master away from you today? And he said, yeah, I know it. Hold you your peace. <laughs> and Elijah said to him, Elisha, tarry here, I pray, and the Lord has sent me to Jericho. And he said, as the Lord lives and as thy soul lives, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. Everybody say Jericho. So there's been Gilgal, Bethel, now Jericho, right? And he said, uh, so they came to Jericho. And the sons of the prophets, here they are again, were, were at Jericho. They came to Elisha and said unto him, knowest how the Lord will take away your master from your head today? And he answered, yeah, I know it. Hold you your peace. And Elijah said, Terry, I pray thee here, stay here, for the Lord has now sent me to Jordan. And he said, as the Lord has lived, as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. And they too went on. Everybody say Jordan. So here we are. He gives Elisha four opportunities to go start his own ministry. Four opportunities to go do what he wants to do. Four opportunities since the time Elijah came down out of the mountain and laid his mantle upon Elisha, signifying to him that a great call is available if you want it. 
He burned his plowshare. He killed his oxen. He said goodbye to his family. Bye, Felicia, to the crazy cousins. And he went on and followed the man of God. And for the next 10 plus years, he poured water in the hands of Elijah. He served the man of God. You never see where he got uppity, where he got antsy, where he tried to take the ministry, where he tried to make his spiritual father look bad, make himself look good. He never tried to sneak off in the middle of the night through email. He never did stuff like that. He stayed with the man of God. And then the test came where Elijah said, stay, 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 four times. And Elisha said, I will not stay, I will not stay, I will not stay, I will not stay. I will follow you. And he followed the man of God across Jordan. And where were the school of the prophets? They were on the other side watching this all unfold. That right there shows you that there's also different levels of relationship. Don't open yourself up to everyone. Access is a privilege, not a right. And Elijah took his mantle, wrapped it together, smote the waters. They divided hither, thither. They went over onto dry ground. And it came to pass as they were gone over that Elijah said to Elisha, and here's the question, what do you want? before I'm taken from you. And Elisha said, I pray, let a double portion of thy spirit be on me. Now he was asking for what we call the right of the firstborn. In the Old Testament, under law, if you were the firstborn of your family, you got the firstborn inheritance. It's never said anywhere in scripture that Elijah had any children. Elisha was asking for the firstborn right. And he says... Back to Elisha. Well, you have asked a hard thing, nevertheless. Conjunction, junction, what's your function? Nevertheless. <laughs> if you see me when I'm taken from you, my God. Somebody need to shout out, nevertheless. The devil thought he had me, nevertheless. They told me I was going to lose my job. The doctor said you're going to die in six months. Come on, somebody. Is that all you got? You better give me a Nevertheless. Nevertheless, and it came to pass as they went on and talked that behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire and parted them both asunder. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven and Elisha saw it and he cried, my father, my father. He laid claim to a spiritual father. He identified himself as the son of Elijah which meant he got the identity of the man of God. He wouldn't have got it had he not seen it, had he not been there. Well, I'm not going to go to Wednesday night service because I'm tired. Could it be that be the night God was sending miracles? <laughs> you won't get it if you don't see it. Are you hearing what I'm trying to? I'm just trying to give you some principle, just easy principle that I learned in grade school. My father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. And he saw him no more. And he took a hold of his own clothes and he rent them in two pieces. And he took up also the mantle of Elijah that fell from him. And he went back and stood by the bank of Jordan. And he took the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and smote the waters and said, Where is the Lord God of Elijah? And when he had also smitten the waters, they parted hither and thither. And Elisha went over. And when, listen to this, and when the sons of the prophets, which were to view at Jericho, saw him, they said, the spirit of Elijah does rest on Elisha. 
And they came to meet him and bowed themselves to the ground before him. And I want you to notice what happens in this story. Number one, write this down. You will attract what you are. You will attract what you are. I'm going to say that a third time. You will attract what you are. And here's what they had in common. Number one, mutual vision. Followers do not naturally line up with a leader whose vision they don't respect. Both Elijah and Elisha possessed a vision to serve God for the sake of Israel. And when Elisha had the opportunity to share Elijah's work, he turned away from a life of farming and ran after and adopted the vision of his leader. They had a mutual vision. Number two, they had mutual expectations. Mutual expectations happen naturally from a mutual vision. Elijah and Elisha both expected to do great things for God, and Elisha expected to receive a double portion of the anointing that was upon Elijah. Number three, they had mutual contributions. Individuals follow leaders because they believe those leaders can take them where they need to go. Leaders enlist followers because they understand that followers help them realize the vision for it to come to pass. Everyone contributes something to fulfill each other's expectations. Elijah led and mentored Elisha, gave him the opportunity to learn over those 10 plus years how to become a godly leader. And Elisha needed, all he had to do was humble himself, follow the old prophet, and just learn. That arrangement made them both great leaders. What do you do when your leader goes quiet on you? My pastor ain't called me. There might be a reason God's trying to prune something in your life. Sometimes when I couldn't get a hold of this man, I was forced to talk to the Holy Ghost. You can't let your feelings get hurt. Talk to everybody else. I saw them at so-and-so's party. They didn't come to my party. That's why I almost give up going to people's stuff. Because you got to deal with somebody who always has a bee in their bonnet, a hitch in their get-along, a burr in their saddle. None of you all, because you all are sanctified. But suppose. Elisha just humbled himself, stayed under authority, and then number four, they had a mutual commitment. If there's not a strong mutual commitment, you cannot achieve a mutual goal. We have to be both committed to it. Elijah neared the end of his leadership, and Elisha renewed his commitment. Every time Elijah said, I'm leaving, I'm leaving, you can't go with me. And Elisha said, you ain't leaving me, not today. And he stayed right with him. And he renewed it. And four times when Elijah offered to release his protege, Elisha responded, as the Lord lives, as my soul lives, I will not leave you. We're all going to be put to this test. 
when an opportunity presents itself where we can now do our thing. Every open door is not the door. Sometimes it's a test. I've learned that. You got to be careful when people smooth talk you. When my pastor left me in charge to preach and take care of a service so he would go on vacation or something, the people who were upset at my pastor because he had to discipline them, he had to take care of them, he, had to, he knew their ways. He called them on the carpet. And they'd be sick. They wouldn't tithe. They stopped tithing. I'm just going to be honest here now. They've just taken up space. They're not part of, they're not helping contribute anything. They're takers. Upset at my pastor. And when he would be out of town and I would preach, guess who would come up to me and try to smooth talk me? Those people. Man, you, you might be our next pastor. And I had to cut them in place real quick and recognize what spirit they were of. Now, we have one pastor here. Thank you. I'm a son, not a hireling. If you tell me, you better know I'm telling my pastor. My loyalty is to this man. Do you understand what I'm saying? I don't have any conniving, uh, kissing babies type stuff going on. No, 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 no. If you tell me something, you better know it's going to my pastor. Elijah gives Elisha at least four chances to leave him, and Elisha proves his commitment, and he does not leave him. This is where verse 9 and 12 here, and it came to pass when they were gone over, and I read that mostly to you. That he cried, my father, my father. And guess what he got? He got a double portion, but only because he was with his spiritual father till the time of the mantle was passed. There's a blessing when you go all the way with someone. You find out you don't have to steal what belongs to you. That's just going to hit somebody right there. You don't have to steal what belongs to you. Servants grasp for ministry and opportunity. Sons just receive it. It's an inheritance. I don't have to make anything happen. My father already goes before me and grants me space. You were not created to be a ministry poacher. Because poaching violates spiritual inheritance. Oh, yes, Lord, speak. Your people listen. He got an inheritance of the firstborn. Now, as they come, where in the Bible, if, if double portion goes from generation to generation, so if every generation gets the double portion, wouldn't you think that like after the second, third We'd be up into quadrupled anointings and, right? So the Bible mentions that Elisha's spiritual father is who? Elijah, okay? Where is Elisha's spiritual son? He had a son by the name of Gehaziah. And the Bible says that Gehazi got greedy. He took 
instead of waited to receive. And the Bible said that he was stricken with leprosy. Later, Gehazi would be healed of the leprosy and brought in. But he was no longer a son to Elisha. This troubled me in my spirit because there ought to be Elisha's son showing up. So it shows me that not everybody gets it. But as your pastor, I am determined before I die, somebody will get this. Because I'm living what I live. I'm talking about what is not, this is not practice. This is not a theory for me. This is real life practicum for me. I'm live, I've lived this. I'm still living it. I am a son. And the only thing that qualifies me to be a father is because I learned how to first be a son. And you can have more than one. I don't think we need to go crazy on saying, and this person's my father, and this person's my mother, and I think you got to be very cautious on that. When you have maybe a death and someone, you think, well, who's going to take their place? Just recently, God added to my fatherhood, and I'll share that with you later, another spiritual father in my life. And the beautiful part of having more than one spiritual father, if that happens for you, praise God, if you only have one, that's okay. And it don't have to be me. For some people, I'm a friend. Some people, I'm a coach, a mentor. Some people, I'm a preacher. I'm just their preacher. They'll leave here just like they left the last place. They just need a preacher. That's okay. You can find preachers on every corner. There's a, a deeper level called fatherhood, sonship. And these people help you. Not, they don't control your life. They're not God. They're just a voice in your life that you've submitted yourself to. And when you do, you get all the benefits, all the blessings. Everything that, they, everything that they're attached to, you're in line to receive. You get the blessing from everything that God... If God blesses them, you get that blessing. And they pass it on to you. Do you know how many opportunities have been given to me as a son because I stayed up under a father? My fathers sent me, Pastor Hill, the night that they voted my wife in myself and my wife as state youth directors, I was so unprepared. He parted the sea. He gave a good word. He vouched for me. said, I believe in him. I felt so unqualified. And then they voted me in and I thought, my God, what has happened? He was in the middle of a revival and instead of going because the day had been long, he sent me to preach that meeting. I was so scared. It was an opportunity. 
opportunities like that have come in my life because of fathers who, who called ahead, who made the way clear, who vouched, who when I, when, when I needed breakthroughs and I needed help, people made ways for me all because of who I was connected to. And so I don't, I don't take advantage of that relationship. It goes both ways. Reciprocity. When General Bishop Wayman Ming, who will be here in October, my spiritual father, our bishop for our movement, he called me one day and he said, Russell, he said, I have an invitation to go to Brazil. I cannot make the meeting. He said, I want to send you and Beverly in my place to speak to the nation. That happened because of a father. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? Don't ever disconnect. You lose what could have been. Please don't, you know, you, this is so deep. You, you got to peel this like an onion. You got to get it line up on line and let it sink in. Every blessing I have in my life, some way or another, it's been because of who I'm connected to. When I look at Ben in the sound booth, full-time here in ministry now, young man in our church, I watched him stack chairs in the gym. I watched him at the old church running around in the hallways playing freeze tag with people. And to see the connection that God has brought over the process of time. Do you understand how valuable that is? And every win that I have, he, he, he wins. Every win that I have, this church wins. Because let me tell you, when I go to Brazil and I preach in places like that, I don't sit there and talk about me. I talk about y'all. I talk about Bethel Family Worship Center because we are family. We're connected. And we have a shared inheritance. And I need somebody to stand in faith and take a mantle and part some waters with me. I can't do it on my own. I need some sons and daughters to take the mantle and part the water. Come on, let's stand to our feet tonight. Holy Spirit, seal the word in our heart tonight that we run after you that we become all that you want us to be. God, we are crying out, my Father, my Father, tonight. Let a connection, a generational blessing come upon Bethel Family Worship Center. I release a double portion to the sons and daughters of this house that they will walk in multiplied miracles twice as much as anyone else, myself could ever have done. I pray, God, for the lineage of this house, the spiritual posterity of this house the pastors, the missionaries the leaders that you are raising up the prophets, the evangelists the apostles, the teachers that you are raising up in this house and I pray God that we will see great success together I pray Lord that this message will get in somebody's heart so deep that they'll dream about this type of relationship, that not Lord, dream up something that's just out there in the cosmos, but something that has been embedded by the Holy Ghost.
I pray, Lord, for every minister and every leader in this house who has a call of God upon their life. And right now, maybe they only feel like they're reaching 25% of that. That I let them see the bigger picture, God. Let them, Lord, have their Gilgal, their Bethel, their Jericho, and their Jordan experiences so that they may walk in the double portion. Lord, teach us what we need to learn, Lord. Help us to grow. Help us to become. Help us, Lord, to get past ourselves. Help us to search out the deep things of God. Yea, the deep things of the Lord. Let it become revelation into our spirit tonight, God. Help us, Holy Ghost. Help us, Lord. As they sing tonight, I want those of you that feel the call to respond to this word tonight in your spirit come into this altar if you're able or at your seat. I mean, I want you to respond by faith tonight. I'll let the Holy Ghost do His work. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Bethel Family Worship Center.